This morning we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 19. We began uh, a month ago, the first few verses of this. Uh, We're going to cover the whole chapter, but I'm going to read uh, the whole chapter as part of the context uh, to set the scene for us. Our New Testament passage is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. So if you place your bulletin... Bulletin insert is a bookmark in Exodus 19. Open your Bibles to Hebrews, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, hear God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 19, continuing in the reading of God's word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the edge of the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and to the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts, ourselves. Transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Cathedrals are awe-inspiring. If you've ever been to Europe and seen some of those old medieval cathedrals, then you know what I'm talking about. I will be honest with you, I have been to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and I found it very uninspiring. Uh, But presumably, the other cathedrals in D.C. that I've been to, there's a a uh, couple of significant Roman Catholic cathedrals, and there's a Greek Orthodox cathedral. Uh, presumably, they would also be awe-inspiring. But, but generally, the point of a cathedral is to visually impress your senses. To, to, and, and not just visually, but, but it, there, there's the the visual aspect of the soaring buttresses and the soaring ceilings that draws your eyes upward to heaven. There's the smell of the incense. Uh, you'll, you'll smell it only in a cathedral. You won't smell it anywhere else. There, there's the, the sound of the Gregorian chants. Uh, and especially if they're having a, a full service, you might have the choir on both sides uh, singing antiphonally uh, back and forth to one another, and, and just the, the way that the sound rolls through the space. All of our senses are engaged, and it leaves us with a sense of otherness. We have stepped into another world. We're not in normal world. One of my favorite writers, many of you know, is Rod Dreher. And Rod Dreher, in in speaking about his own conversion, says that he was an atheist 
uh, and he went on a tour of France, and the tour guide took him to the cathedral in Chartres. And it was there that he said, you know what, a religion that produces this is a religion that I want to get to know better. And so Rod Dreher became Catholic and later became Greek Orthodox, and as I understand, still is. But the point is that this visual, visually, all the five senses, this overwhelming experience was something that caused him to recognize that there's something outside of himself. Now, Rod Dreher, in, in talking about that cathedral that he visited in France, said it was like stepping into the mind of God. And that's what a cathedral is designed to do. It, the, the purpose of the architecture and the worship and everything that goes on in a cathedral is to give you a sense of the mind of God. Beloved, if chapter 19 of Exodus is anything, it is the first cathedral. This is the first cathedral. This mountain soaring, drawing the people's attention, the flame, the fire, the smoke, God coming down, the trumpet blasting, all of this overwhelming visual and auditory stimulus that the people would have seen there on Mount Sinai. Now, of course, we know, but it's helpful to remind us, that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were presented as one book. They have all got the same author, and that's Moses. They're presented as one book. And so, taking Genesis together as, as part of the Pentateuch, as part of the Torah, taking Genesis together, the first 68 chapters of the Bible had been building to this moment, to Mount Sinai, to this experience. It's the story of how Israel got here. And now the next 59 books, or chapters... <laughs> the next 59 chapters of the Bible are going to take place at this location. They're going to take place here at Mount Sinai. The children of Israel are not going to leave Mount Sinai until Numbers chapter 10. So the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and up until Numbers chapter 10, uh, all take place right here in this one location. And so what happens here is defining for the children of Israel. This is their identity. And we start their identity. We start their story here in this cathedral. And I want to draw two components of this cathedral. I want to just point out two components. This is not everything that could come out of this passage. There's plenty more. But remember, we're going to be camped here with the children of Israel, here at the foot of Mount Sinai, for 59 more chapters. 
That's presuming I, teach, I go through Leviticus right after Exodus. Uh, but we're going to be camped here for 59 chapters. So we're going to touch on a lot of the themes uh, that, that come out of this. But the two essential ones that I want us to see in God's cathedral, the two essential ones are first, His holiness. That's clearly front and center here. God is holy. And you cannot approach Him in a casual manner. So we first see God's holiness. But secondly, we see God's love. And it's that love that turns God's holiness from something that you and I run in terror from to something that you and I can rest and trust in. First, God's holiness. Now, the markers in this in this text, in verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God calls the people to be holy. And then in verse 10, he goes through this, this holiness ritual, this consecration ritual. They're to wash their clothes. They're to take three days to make themselves consecrated to God. They're taking this approach to God very, very seriously. So much so that Moses says, you're not even to go and enjoy legitimate pleasures. Legitimate pleasures that God has given to you, that's to be set aside for right now. This is a serious business of holiness. And then in verse 12, obviously this was a big thing that that you noticed in this passage. The writer of the Hebrews picks it up clearly. The mountain itself is holy. God invites the people to be holy. The people are to make themselves holy and they're to recognize that this mountain itself is holy. So holy that they are not to touch it, that the animals are not to come to it. If, a, if anybody, man or beast, touches it, they're to be killed. God's holiness is front and center. And beloved, that's where you and I must start. That's where every understanding of the Bible, every understanding of the Christian faith, everything falls apart if we do not begin where God begins. Isaiah sees God's holiness in Isaiah chapter 6, and what does he do? He falls on his face. Woe is me. I am undone. I am not holy. Mount Sinai and this, this, this cathedral that God sets for us here is clearly God is holy. And you and I are not to come into His presence. Only His appointed one can enter into His presence. It's Moses and Aaron, not even all the priests that can come into the mountain. God is first and foremost 
holy. And beloved, if you do not begin with that proposition, you're going to get everything wrong. And that's where so much of the gospel, so much of the message of Christianity really messes things up. Is the church called to transform the world around us? No. Hear me. No. The church is called to reflect the holiness of God. Now, will that have implications around us? Of course it will. Of course it will. But that's not the calling of the church. The church is not called to clothe the poor, to feed the hungry, to care for the sick. And yet in Matthew, when Christ says, those who are welcome to enter into the kingdom of heaven, what are they identified by? They clothed the poor. They fed the hungry. They visited the prisoner. This is not what makes you a Christian. It, just pause on that for just a minute. Just pause for just a second. If you, you, you know that passage, right? You know the passage of Jesus separating the sheep from the goats, right? Everybody, every Christian knows that passage. Have you ever stopped and thought, what is it that allows the sheep to come into the presence of God? Because what should we expect Jesus to say? You believed in me. You believed, you, you, you asked forgiveness of your sin. I will say unto the sheep, you are the ones who accepted me into your hearts. Therefore, enter into the joy of the Lord. Right? We know the message of the gospel. You have nothing to bring to God. God gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the basis upon which you and I can be at peace with God. But what does that passage say? The passage actually points to your works. It points to what you do. Now that ought to give us some pause. <laughs> that ought to cause us to say, what is Jesus teaching a gospel of works here, or of salvation by works, and, and Paul comes and teaches a salvation by grace? Well, what's going on here? It's simply this. What Jesus Christ is doing is expecting you, of course, to have the whole context of the New Testament, of the gospel, of the Bible, uh, to have to have all the message of the Bible together. But here's what he's saying is that a living faith is not alone. That you and I are going to live out our identity. You and I are going to display what God has done in us. And the very first thing that God does in us is display His holiness and turn your heart from seeing that as negative to being something that you want to be. Now, as a teenager growing up in a Christian home, as a young young man, as a teenager, young young adult, 
when I looked at the Christian faith, you know what I saw? I saw boring. I saw rules. I saw hypocrisy. I saw all these adults saying, be holy. But in my mind, I could list all of the different ways they weren't. And therefore, it didn't mean a thing to me. But you know, the real root problem was, I never really saw holiness as beautiful. I never really saw holiness as sweet, as something that I desired. And beloved, that is the first picture that we get clearly out of this cathedral that God has set up. Beloved, you begin to understand God truly when you fall on your face before His holiness. That's the first true vision you get of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. This mountain gives us a very clear picture of God's holiness. But it also gives us a pretty clear picture of God's love. Thank God it does. (laughs) Because this holy God, this God who cannot look upon sin, this God who looks at you and me and our imperfections and says, Don't come near my mountain. If you touch my mountain, you will be slain. You cannot enter into my presence. Is the God who then invites us into his presence. This is the wonder, the wonder of the gospel. See, there are three real cables, strands. You've heard me refer to Exodus as a tapestry. And, and, the, the thing with tapestries is you'll have these threads that, that will be significant ones that will come in and out of the picture and, and will often tend to, to draw the whole picture together so that when you're standing up close to a tapestry, you don't see it. But when you step, across, step, step you know, to the other side of the room and look at it from a distance, you start to see, oh, oh, that's the beauty beauty of this of this thing. So as we step up closer to this tapestry, to this picture of God's redeeming grace, there are three cables that run through this tapestry of love. The first is God's love for his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The second is God's love for his son. And the third is God's love for his bride. In chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 15, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, He says to Moses, I have remembered the promise that I gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What was that promise? What was the promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You remember. You know the story. When he appeared to Abraham and he gave that promise to Abraham, the promise was 
that his descendants would be as the stars in the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, beloved, is nothing less than that God will redeem humanity. That's the promise. That's the glory, and that's what God remembers. That's his love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that promise of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Of a broken and sinful people being healed and reconciled. As we sang, my God is reconciled. I no longer fear. He owns me for his child. That's the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a second strand of love that comes through here. We see that one referred to in Exodus chapter 4 when God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, and if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. God loves his firstborn son. As we've seen, that firstborn son is Jesus Christ. That perfect Israel is Jesus Christ. Matthew in chapter 2 said, this is why Jesus was taken down to Egypt. So that it might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Jesus Christ, in seed form, God's love for his son, his perfect son, drives the story of salvation. I, years ago, uh, I, I think I've said this before, I used to really enjoy watching a certain channel on cable television that my wife referred to as the heresy channel. And I watched it because it gave me the opportunity to pat myself on the back and say how wrong these other people were, and it probably was not the most spiritually nourishing experience for me. It appealed to my snarkiness more than to my humility. But I do remember a number of things from my time enjoying that experience, and one of those was this. A man trying to speak evangelistically, to trying to bring people uh, you know, to, to Christ, And he was saying, you know, at the last day, the Son, Jesus Christ, will be standing there as people walk by and go into hell. And he'll be shedding tears and they'll be pouring down his face. And he'll turn to his Father and he'll say, Father, what more could I have done? And the Father will say, there was nothing more you could do. This is their fault. They had the opportunity to choose and they didn't choose you. And, and, now is your time. Don't let the son cry. Don't let Jesus weep over you as you go into heaven. Baloney! God loves his son. And redemption is about God's love for his son. God loves his son. And not one that the father gives to the son will ever be lost. And the glory of God, the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ, 
is the message of the gospel. And so does that just mean that God is now some unfeeling, uncaring, isolated deity? No, absolutely not, because there's a third strand. There's a third strand of love that comes through this narrative. And that is of the Father's love for the bride. The Father's love for the bride. Preparing a bride. For his son. Later in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea are three examples. When Israel turns against God, when they when they when they do not follow after God as they're called to do, those three prophets say. You are an adulteress. You know that language? You know the language from Hosea? I mean, that's a book that's kind of uncomfortable to read. Because it's pretty explicit in terms of Hosea and Gomer's relationship to her, to him and, and all those things. It's a pretty explicit description of the church, of God's people as an adulteress. And so let me ask you, In order to be an adulterer, what do you first have to be? Married. (laughs) And so where did the marriage take place? It's right here. This is the covenant marriage ceremony. This is the covenant wedding. This is referred to by later prophets. This period of time is when God took Israel to be the bride for His Son. Hebrews, we read that passage earlier. Hebrews says, as awe-inspiring as this is, as terrifying as this is, you and I have the reality. So, So I want you to take that image of a cathedral. Because I love cathedrals. I've I've said before, one of the reasons that I don't anticipate Sterling Presbyterian Church ever owning its own building is because if you want me to oversee a building program, I want to see a cathedral. I want to see soaring buttresses. I want to see something that draws our attention up and, and just declares to us the glory of God. And I'm pretty sure that unless Warren Buffett becomes a member of Sterling, we're not going to do that. I love the visual imagery. Architecture matters. But we've come to something better. We've come to the reality. We've come into this presence. And so you and I, and say, we're here. That's, that's the point of the, the writer to the Hebrews. Now, now, Peter picks this up. Actually, Hebrews chapter 12 goes on and says, therefore, be holy. Peter picks this up in 1 Peter chapter 2 and says, you're a holy nation, you're a kingdom of priests. Language that draws from Exodus chapter 19. And says, therefore, 
Be holy. Live it out. The next 59 chapters are what, how to do that. How to live out this holiness that God calls us to be. But beloved, we live out this holiness because we're a bride. Because he set his love upon you. Because he's embraced you in all your brokenness and in all your sin, not to leave you broken and sinful, but beloved, to heal you. The sun rises with healing in his wings. And that healing, beloved, is yours. And it's mine. All of this language that's going to cover the next 59 chapters is going to come in the context of holiness is beautiful. How can I be holy? What can I do? Recognizing how much God has done for me. That's the message of Exodus, isn't it? He's redeemed you. He's brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's redeemed you by His mighty and outstretched hand. He's brought you up to His mountain and He gives you His law. He cares for you in the wilderness. He watches over you. How can I return just a portion of what He's given to me? How can I show Him that I love Him as as a pale reflection of what I appreciate? of how much He loves me. Beloved, if we approach it from that standpoint, then all the language of legalism, that, that, that belongs somewhere else. That, that's not here. That's not here in this text, and it's not here anywhere around the Pentateuch. All this language of dotting the I's and crossing the T's, that's not here. What's here? is God's love for a bride and the bride returning that love to her bridegroom. And beloved, that is the promise. That is the promise of the entire scripture. Exodus chapter, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 21. Do you remember what that language is in Revelation 21? That beautiful story at the end, I saw the new Jerusalem the heavenly city coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned, prepared for her bridegroom. That's what you and I are promised. That's what you and I are made. And that's where you and I are heading. He who has begun a work in you will complete it. He will see it through to that day of completion. You and I can fall down, but it is God who first lifted you up and it is God who will continue to lift up His child. Because He will not allow His son to marry a dirty, cast-off person. He's going to make her pure. He's going to make her beautiful. The beauty is holiness. And he calls you and he calls me into that joy. We're going to come to the Lord's table here in just a moment. Normally, and I am doing it even now, transitioning from the text 
to the table. But beloved, before we step out of this particular passage, whether you are a child or whether you are the eldest in the room, wherever you are, why do you want to be holy? Do you? Do you desire holiness? And if so, why? And beloved, I want to encourage you, listen to this language of love. Listen to this language that God weaves throughout this story of redemption. Ask yourself, are you in love? Are you in love with Him? You might blame Him. You might say, my life isn't what it should be. God, this is your fault. You might be angry with Him. You might be bitter against Him. You might be hurt. All these things. Beloved, are you in love with Him? If you're not, there's your first problem. There it is. Are you in love with Him? Remember in Revelation, Jesus says, you've lost what? Your first love. I have this against you. Are you in love with Him? Not asking, have you done all the right things, dotted the I's, crossed the teeth, blah, blah, blah. Not asking any, are you in love with him? If you're in love with him, then beloved, you want to be close to him. You want to be like him. You want to reflect him. And if you examine your heart and you say, you know what, I'm not in love with him. I'm angry at him, bitter at him. I don't even think he exists. I don't even know then I would plead with you to come. Come and taste and see that He is good. His mercy endures forever. There are so many things in my life that I've gone through. There are so many things in other people's lives that you all have gone through that I haven't. But I know that I can look back on those difficult times and I can say without God, I would have taken my life. No question. There is no question. Without God, I would have taken my life. Beloved, He is the one who takes every hurt, who takes every thorn, who takes every disappointment, who takes every injustice, who takes every wrong, and uses it in order to make you and me know Him better, love Him more richly. What a Savior.